to condo or condone to convert those offices. This week, Urban Planning Committee heard about a proposal to subsidize downtown office tower to residential conversions. Plus, Blatchford has a new builder, and the city has a secret $8 million technology project. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 240. Listening back to the tape from last week, I realized last episode was the first in 239 episodes that I didn't say the episode number off the top. So for anyone confused about what number you were listening to last week, it was 239. I guess it was bound to happen sooner or later, Troy. We all make mistakes. Like you, dear listener, would be making a mistake if you don't show up in a couple hours, probably when you're listening to this, to 102 Street downtown at 5.15 a.m. Saturday, November 4th. You can ride the first Valley Line train. I hear you're bringing cake. Is this true? I have ordered the cake from Costco. Uh, Mike Kunicki is also bringing several dozen or maybe just one and a bit dozen liters of coffee um, that's been freshly brewed. I've been told there will be cupcakes and other things, but it is a very mishmash party, a collective party, and you won't want to miss it. Uh, The train departs once again at 5.15 a.m., so arrive on time. Well, of course, downtown where the new train is on 102 Ave was where the 102 Ave plan died, the pedestrianization plan. Both you and I were very sad about that, but... Paths for People and the Urban Development Institute are looking to move on gracefully from that. And in collaboration with the uh, Downtown Business Association and the Downtown Recovery Coalition, have released their walk and roll plan to improve accessibility and commuting experiences in the downtown core. Yeah, I think the final partner is the Downtown Edmonton Community League. So, I mean, in theory, this is all the major groups coming together, the business community, residents, the developers, you know, other advocacy organizations. And the, the whole goal with this plan, as I understand it, is to try and provide a bit of an assessment of where we're at and guide the discussion about where we might go in terms of pedestrianization and mobility. So how do we make it more friendly for people to get around downtown on their two feet? And they've identified some strategies to help them do that. So they're sort of mapping different interests and doing a deep dive into data. They were going to organize, as I understand it, some tours and some walks and things like that, and potentially also some um, public engagement sessions and some targeted stakeholder meetings as well. This is not a plan with funding, though, Troy. This is really just a stake in the ground, a flag in the ground to say, like, we think it's important that downtown has a good network for people to walk. Not important enough to actually do it, uh, which we had the opportunity to uh, last year, but, you know talk about doing it. And so this is all in preparation of the city's urban planning committee in December, actually, we'll be discussing a report to temporarily close some downtown streets. This is not what we were talking about with 102 Ave, where it would be a permanent closure, but things like the former 104 Street Farmer's Market, how seasonally on a Saturday, it would close down that street. The city is looking at exploring more opportunities like that, and that will be coming back in December. Troy, when I was looking through their plan, I got to say it was pretty obvious stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Like the areas of interest where people, you know, provided input and some of the initial feedback they gathered, you know, around McEwen University, around 
the arts district and stuff downtown, close to transit. They said everybody's concerned or feels connected to some street downtown. Like there's no street where people are like, oh, we really don't care about that one. But the major nodes is where you would expect they see priority from people that there should be improvements made there. I will note that the largest line on their little map here is Jasper Avenue followed by 102nd Avenue. Yeah, so this is why I'm a little bit down on this plan. I don't mean to poo-poo on people who are rising up from the community to, you know, advocate for things that ostensibly I want. Uh, I do want these things. But I think we saw last year that the consensus around the idea of urbanization and pedestrianization of a downtown is already pretty there. People pretty well understand the benefits of pedestrianization. And in fact, when presented with a viable opportunity, the only opposition were irrational points, I think is the best way to describe it. That's how we described it in the moment. And not to be too bitter about 102 Ave, but like you said, on the report, it's highlighted as a pretty big opportunity, but the city has ruled this is completely out of the question. They're not going to pedestrianize 102 Ave because the design is perfect. Am I just misremembering history here, Troy, or was it not the organizations you mentioned, the Downtown Recovery Coalition, the Urban Development Institute, the Downtown Business Association, that held a press conference on 102nd Avenue to oppose the closure of 102nd Avenue, now contributing to a report talking about pedestrianizing places like 102nd Avenue. (laughs) You're not incorrect about that, Mac, but... I wouldn't say that logical and argumentative consistency is a trait that I would ascribe to those organizations that you mentioned. (laughs) And I think there's no better example of that than, you know, the Downtown Recovery Coalition and the UDI and ostensibly Prosperity Edmonton, their precursor. They all argued in the previous budget, hold the line, no tax increases. We don't want taxpayer dollars funding frivolous things. We don't want taxpayer dollars subsidizing things that aren't the core business of the city. They argued this week that uh, the city of Edmonton should fund a hundred million or so for downtown office conversions that the city report said probably wouldn't pay off in a hundred years. Yeah, we talked a bit about this last week and how like Calgary's program has been quite successful. Calgary's program has been subscribed to. Yeah. The success in terms of return on investment of Calgary's program still remains to be seen. Yeah, sure. Like, are these projects actually going to get done? Is it going to actually, you know, contribute positively to the housing stock that they've got, reduce the vacancy rate of offices? All of these things remain to be seen, but they've at least seen some interest from developers and the city did put up the money to do it. Here in Edmonton, the amount of money that is required for this is potentially not palatable. And so council or at least urban planning committee this week went looking for a potential source of funding. And where they landed was the downtown CRL. So the community revitalization levy, which is potentially sensible, right? We have this CRL, this designated area, the whole point of which is to lift the tax base within that area to cover the cost of borrowing the money up front. So it seems sensible to do that. But the downtown serial is not new, is the first problem. And the second problem is that we've already assigned funding for that downtown serial to a whole bunch of other things, which would have to wait or get bumped in order to fund this office conversion program, including notably 
the Green and Walkable Downtown Project, which is about improving the pedestrianization and connections in the downtown area to support all of the other developments and investments that we've made around the arena and other places. I don't, I don't think this is the right approach to put all of those things on hold simply to help developers convert some office towers into residential, as appealing as that might be from a, the point of view of getting more people to live downtown. So I'll note one of the big projects funded by the CRL is the Warehouse Park, which we mentioned last week was one of those green walkability, livability projects that the city report actually noted did incent residential development. It's a bet, right? The CRL has to pay off. Your investments have to pay off for it to work. The city report noted that these office tower conversions are unlikely to pay off within 100 or so years. But we have other CRLs in the city And this is a notable concern. While the downtown CRL has been successful and has been paying off, some of our other CRLs don't look so rosy. Yeah, like the Fort Road one in particular has had challenges. The quarters has had challenges attracting development. You know, there's an argument to be made that we potentially had too many CRLs in the city at the same time. The opposition that came to this this week at committee was just from Councillor Rutherford, though, and it wasn't for the reasons that you mentioned. She opposed uh, on committee, was the only one to vote against getting a report back about the potential of using the CRL because of perceptions. And she specifically cited the zoning bylaw renewal, which we've been talking about recently, as being maybe perceived as too friendly to developers. And she's concerned that any sort of office tower conversion funding would just perpetuate that narrative. My opposition would very much be from the point of view that it's going (laughs) to delay or potentially, you know, kick down the road or or cancel other really important projects that need to happen in the downtown. I'm much less concerned about the perception of it. And I will say that, like, you know, if we get more people living downtown, that is a good thing for the sustainability and longevity of downtown. If we want to have more vibrancy downtown, we need more people to live there. So, you know, if we did go ahead with a program like this, A really strong argument needs to be made that that's going to come to fruition in a reasonable amount of time and probably with some rules around it, right? Like if we just incentivize uh, developers to go build a bunch of bachelor suites, not allowing families to live downtown or, you know, people that need a little bit more space or different kinds of housing stock in the downtown, that would be a big problem. That, you know, isn't going to create the same kind of vibrancy that we're looking for as if we make downtown a really livable place, which is what, you know, green and walkable and those other projects are meant to help do is to make it a much more livable place. Yes, uh, committee did pass this for one. Uh, It's going to not fund the uh, per square foot subsidy, but it's going to generate another report that council can debate further. While it was for one, there were members in opposition that were present, but didn't have a voting seat on urban planning committee. Councillors Jans and Salvador both spoke at length and some interesting points that I think both of them brought up, specifically Councillor Salvador, she mentioned, you know, there's only candidates of at maximum five buildings. So if we're talking about this huge investment, is that going to get us the return on investment? That's something like a park or something like a broader investment might. Right. And Councillor Jans also brought up a very interesting point that the largest landowner in the quarters, one of the chronically undeveloped areas of the city, is the city of Edmonton. Yeah. We don't need to necessarily fund private developers to incent development. If the city owns all this land in the quarters, maybe let's do a per door subsidy and spur development on those city-owned lots, how much bang could we get for those bucks relative to this? And I think that was the through line of some of the opposition to this is, yeah, this might be an okay plan. This might work. 
but would other things work better with the money that we have? Yeah, and if we're going to take that money, we, we should spend it on something that we think is going to give us the best opportunity here. There's yeah, the other risk, of course, as you said, this is a bit of a bet that it's going to work out. It's a bit of a bet that construction costs are going to continue to remain high. And it's a bit of a bet that the economic situation is going to make it not feasible for private developers to do this on their own. That's the whole idea. We have a subsidy. But if the macroeconomic situation changes dramatically in the next year, then it does really look like what Councilor Rutherford said. We've just given a bunch of money to the developers for what exactly? So that is a big problem. And I think hopefully this report that comes back will not just look at you know, what are the implications to the CRL and the other projects, but what are some of the other ways we might achieve the same objectives? Like, as you pointed out, maybe the park is going to be a much better way to incentivize that development than a per square foot subsidy. Well, you mentioned big bags of cash being distributed around. And Mac, we got to talk about the Edmonton Police Service, the most notable holder of the big bag of cash in the city (laughs) of Edmonton. This week, there was a press release from the Edmonton Police Commission, which was surprising, to say the least, uh, when I received it in my inbox, because it calls for service packages. Mac, didn't we go through a long process to get rid of some service packages? Yes. When we had the funding formula discussion, there was quite a bit of concern that we would approve the formula and then still be met with a large number of service packages. And the police service you know, wanted to reserve the right to bring forward a service package. So they didn't want to take that completely off the table, which is the situation we find ourselves in. But these service packages are a little bit different than the ones we were worried about, because all of the ones that the police commission brought forward here are for the capital budget, not the operating budget. So the funding formula for the police funds the operations of the police service. I think we always understood that we were going to have police-related projects, capital projects, in the capital budget. That is how we fund police stations and equipment and other things in the same way as we build libraries and and other city facilities, fire stations, all that kind of stuff. So the four service packages that are being proposed for the supplementary capital budget adjustment are $4.5 million for replacement of police radios, $1.3 million for body armor, $3.3 million for some police IT infrastructure sustainment and $1.5 million for police IT application sustainment, uh, which is bureaucracy for give us some tech money. Yeah. I will be interested to see how these are received and how these are communicated through the media because one very interesting thing I've noticed in the past week and a half that is different from any other time in Edmonton political history is like reporters at Post Media, I'm thinking like Lauren Boothby and Keith Jarine when they were talking about the tax increases specifically and emphatically called out the Edmonton Police Service as driving a big portion of this tax increase and calling out the specific numbers that 1.63 percentage points of that 2% tax increase are due solely to the police. And Mac, this level of not even scrutiny, but just calling a spade a spade, this hasn't happened for the Edmonton Police. The idea that we are specifically targeting these increases to the organizations that's causing them I think is new, novel. And if this continues to happen, I think it might signal a tiring of the general population to unlimited funding increases. I think it's different in the from in the past in that we have a pretty concrete reason why that percentage went up, right? This is the salary settlements. You can draw a line directly from that to the tax increase. I do remember in the past when council has uh, approved budgets and city has put out a news release, we have broken out 
tax increases by percentage, and we'd say 1.5 is dedicated to neighborhood renewal, 2% is for LRT, maybe sometimes they'd say 2% is for police. But that was always framed as a, like, we're investing in this thing. Like, we're investing in this because it's a service you care about, and it's going to have really good benefits for Edmontonians. Like, that's always been the way that those things have been framed. And so I think the biggest difference here is, you know, number one, the city's not necessarily breaking out those numbers. And number two, it's not framed as necessarily a, a positive thing. It's it's coming off a little bit more as, see, this is why taxes keep going up and why they will continue to go up with the decisions we've made around how to fund police. I don't know if you're right that it'll signal a change in, in, the, in the tide. I think that really depends on whether people connect the dots to the next thing, which is those numbers are going up. They keep getting more money. A significant part of our tax increase is going to them but my quality of service has not changed or has gone down. Like we're not seeing any reduction in, in crime or I'm, I still don't feel safe when I'm walking to the train station or whatever it is. Like if people don't make those connections, then I don't think it matters if a bunch of journalists at Post Media or elsewhere, you know, talk about the 1.63% because at the end of the day, they're going to still call their counselor and say, we need to give more money to the police. Perhaps this is just my uh, youthful optimism hoping for a change. The city, of course, has their own levels of optimism. We talk about this every time this comes before council. The Community and Public Services Committee has passed a motion calling for the city to increase funding to attract events to Edmonton. And some of the numbers cited in the report are the estimated $64 million in economic activity that events brought to Edmonton in 2023. Yeah, these are eight major national international events. The city spent $1.6 million to help fund those things. And the approval that you mentioned um, is to increase the funding from $500,000 a year to $2 million for this event attraction. You said um, we spent $1.6 million last year, and we're increasing the funding from $500,000 to $2 million. No, this is different. There's it's a difference different. in the funding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the $500,000 is to attract the events. The $1.6 million we spent is to help fund them. Oh, okay. And I, so I think I think it's on top is my understanding. I guess we I, sure I see. So the, the $500,000 is the paperwork fee. This doesn't include the actual funding <laughs> of the events. Yeah, this is the like, you know, send a delegate or make the pitch or build the relationship to get them to come to Edmonton. And then once they come, you know, then we'll spend some more money to actually make those things possible, you know, and some of that is funding that we directly give them. And some of that is city services, right, that we subsidize. You know, I will never harp on events. If they want to spend $500,000 to convince Taylor Swift to come to Commonwealth Stadium, increase the budget, make it $1.5 I'm fine with that. But when we talk about events, I always am leery of this like economic activity that's yeah. generated because it always seems like complete bunk math to me. Made up numbers. If we want to have the World Cup in Edmonton because it would be cool to have the World Cup in Edmonton, great. Let's do it. Let's do things because they're cool. But let's not make up numbers because that really lowers the value of numbers that are real, right? When we have a report that has real numbers and real projections based on, you know, actual measurable things, I really think it gets devalued when we hand wave these pretend numbers around. Yeah, some of these numbers obviously count like exposure on television, you know, to Edmonton as if like a shot of Edmonton that is not even current anymore and is the wrong time of season is going <laughs> to do a whole lot to help us. I would rather see some other numbers used uh, to justify these things. 
like concrete things like occupancy rates of hotels, increase in transit ridership, like all of those kinds of things. Like if we bring an event here and there's a whole bunch of people here, they need to have a place to stay. They need to have places to go to eat. You know, they have to get around. All of that kind of stuff I think would be would be interesting. It would be a better measure of the $64 million or however much the economic activity is. As we were talking before the show about this, you mentioned like the city doesn't have a way to capture any of that. We don't have a sales tax that goes to the city. And I, I don't know that that's the point of this. Like if businesses are doing well in Edmonton, that is a good thing. And maybe we justify spending some money on that as the city to help make that possible. But how we measure that sure, surely could be more directly done than this made up economic activity number that we often hear about. Yeah, I have to assume things like economic activity numbers, those are pitches to convince the province and the feds to contribute because they do capture yeah. in rational provinces sales taxes at the provincial level and federally sales taxes. So, you know, people going to restaurant is captured revenue if they're foreigners. But um, from a city's perspective, you know, honestly, I think the most useful capturing the city could do is just perception from residents. Like, did you enjoy having this event in Edmonton? And, you know, maybe that's a reason to do it. At the base level, the city exists to serve its citizens and make this a good place to live. And if we're doing something that Edmontonians enjoy, great. Mission accomplished. And on that point, I will say things like the crashed ice that we had several years ago or just came out this week that we're going to host the World Ice Climbing Championships. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like those are fun. They're not too political in nature. You know, they're enjoyable, usually accessible things for people in Edmonton to go and attend and they bring different folks to the city. You know, I know you're sort of just offhand if you want to host the World Cup, it's cool. But no, we don't want to spend any money on those <laughs> kinds of events. Like going after those really big events is way more expensive at all levels of government for, for really a tenuous amount of benefit. Those smaller events, I think, are less risky, but also, as you point out, have other like real benefits that, you know, it's more accessible. People here can actually enjoy those things, feel proud about those things. If we're talking about return on investment, though, one of the areas that the city has invested quite substantially into that has been oft criticized about not quite returning is that little neighborhood of Blatchford nestled between Kingsway and former Greyhound Station at the Via Rail depot. And Yellowhead and, you know, Yellowhead Trail, the other places up there. Yeah, I hear you. There was a big piece of news that came out this week that a new home builder, Streetside Development, is setting up in Blatchford to build some houses. Yeah, they're a division of Qualico, so a well-known name in the development builder space, but still pretty interesting. And they're planning to start construction on 26 new condo townhomes near what's called Littlewood Park. They said this will be, quote, unlike anything else in the market, end quote, which, you know, of course, they're going to do from their marketing point of view. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, we've heard lots of negative stuff about Blatchford over the last, well, couple of years, really. And yet we, here we have a developer, a home builder coming in and saying, I want to be part of that community. That feels like a win. It does feel like a win. And it's compounded on another win or at least a draw that uh, came to city council's executive committee just a few weeks ago. Uh, this was covered, of course, in The Pulse, if you were a reader, but we didn't pick up on it on Speaking Municipally. And that was a report that came to committee where the city had contracted a uh, third party uh, assessor to write a report and assess how is Blatchford doing? Is our development timeline acceptable? Are housing prices okay? How do lot prices compare to things in the area. And Mac, I think if I was to summarize the entire report, it was everything's fine. 
Yeah, pretty much. I think the only caveat they had is that they described it as a public policy guided development area. And so maybe, you know, they treat those differently than privately guided development areas. But anyway, they found that the pace of home sales is reasonable. About 86% of homes constructed have been sold. Maybe we haven't built enough, but at least the ones that we have built are, are selling. They found that both lot and home pricing are appropriate. And administration, for its part, says they see significant interest from existing and, and new home builders like the one we just mentioned. So the report is largely, you know, if not rosy, at least, you know, it's not as bad as you might hear about in the media. Yeah, some of the things the report specifically called out as issues quote unquote, to Blatchford development is the district energy system. So homes in Blatchford are heated and cooled via a single district distribution point. This allows them to be higher efficiency and have lower energy costs. But of course, that has additional complexity. Most home builders are, you put a natural gas furnace in a house, it goes boom and heats the house. There's more specialized knowledge required to install these systems. And there's just more time integrating with the utility system. And because it's piped water, there's also seasonality to installs. So where normal homes in greenfield developments could have a development timeline of about 12 months start to finish, the report highlights it's closer to 18 months for the areas in Blatchford. So that does signal a bit of a lag time. Some of the other things that it called out were Blatchford's higher architectural standards. Mm -hmm. One of the other big contentions points is they need to be developer landscaped. So instead of just delivering a house with a dirt lot in the front, landscaping needs to be completed by the developer. This, of course, has an increasing value in housing prices because instead of Joe laying down some sod after work, you know, there's developers with margins doing all of the landscaping. All of this to say... Housing prices were slightly higher in Blatchford, but when they did comparative comparisons, you'll have to consider that Blatchford is next to areas like Glenora and North Glenora, Westmount, Queen Mary Park, Inglewood. The comparative assessment found that lot values and actual per square foot house values were pretty much on par with the residences in the area. And one of the other things that it highlighted that I found especially fascinating was it was comparing the infill development to both greenfield areas and to Greasebaugh as a comparable infill development. And while Blatchford is ever so slightly slower, it notes that most of these areas have a ramp up period that, you know, about three years past initial development, they start to hit a critical mass where the community has developed enough that homes sort of sell themselves. We are reaching that point in Blatchford, you know, for the past three or four years, COVID notwithstanding, Blatchford has sold on the order of 20 to 40 single residential units per year. In 2023, we're on track to sell about 40 of those units, but we also have a condominium project of 55 rooftops coming online in Blatchford. So if you're charting this, the chart is growing. All of this to say, this report, while it highlights some problems, is mostly a rosy report that like Blatchford is working. The plan that we're sticking to is working. Maybe another perspective on the report is that it's just trying to temper the impatience that lots of people feel about this project, right? It was always meant to be a multi-decade development. It was going to take time to build out Blatchford. And maybe what I'm getting from the report is that, you know, hold your horses, everyone. Like, you know, we, we want to see progress there, but things are progressing in a reasonable amount of time compared to other places. And so we don't have to throw everything out yet. Great. So Blatchford, not a boondoggle. Check mark. Yeah. Uh, but boondoggle radar alert. 
we may have some uh, technology boondoggles at the city of Edmonton. There has been an $8 million undisclosed technology project that's come to light at the city of Edmonton. Now, this is secret. It's only been in private reports. No details about exactly what this tech project is has come forth. But the city has said that it is related to, quote unquote, cyber security. Yeah, something related to open city and technology network operations, something about cybersecurity, $8 million. The administration says they should set aside the money for this, but they want to keep it in private. They said that this project is not in the best interest of the corporation or citizens to have the details released. So we don't know exactly what's in there. But Troy, whenever technology projects come up at council and at budget, I always have the same thought. And maybe it's just because I feel more comfortable with technology given my background, but kind of feel like everybody in the room nods their head and says, oh, yeah, okay, mm -hmm, I understand, this is important, mm -hmm, but has no clue what they're actually talking about. No concept of where this money is going to go and what it's going to achieve. But it sounds important, and they don't know enough about it to question it or maybe don't feel empowered or confident enough to question it in the way that they would a road or something, and so they don't, and then it gets approved and we spend a bunch of money in. Like, there's an awful lot of capital profiles in our budget over the years related to IT not just at the city, but at the police, as we mentioned, and other places. And I just, uh, where's all that money going? If I was to speculate on what this item was, it's either something entirely irrelevant that we don't need to be spending $8 million on and everyone's nodding along. But I think more likely, it's a deeply embarrassing technological blunder at the city of Edmonton. I'm thinking something like, you know, back in 2019, 2020, 2021, there were those big... Intel CPU zero days like Spectre and Meltdown yeah. that yeah. were very, very big, widely publicized, incredibly large scope vulnerabilities. I suspect the city just simply didn't patch a huge portion of their systems. And they're like, well, oops, this is pretty vulnerable. And now we have to, you know, upgrade 1500 servers or whatever the case might be. Maybe it's not one of those two, but something along those lines where disclosing what they didn't do would open them to extreme vulnerability because there's a known open vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, lots of municipalities across the continent and maybe elsewhere in the world too have fallen victim to these scams, right? Where people, hackers or other groups seize the assets and you have to pay a ransom to get them back. And lots of municipalities have paid the ransom in order to get their systems back. Uh, maybe they've identified you know, they're at risk for that. And this is a way to close the, the gap there. And, and so they obviously wouldn't want to share that publicly because we'd be hit with a ransom attack tomorrow. But that's, I think, being a bit charitable to administration. I feel like they could give a little bit more information about what this is without necessarily revealing all of the details and increasing the, uh, the risk factor. And council will hopefully hear that in private, of course, because that's how they're slated to debate this item. And one of the councillors that will be hearing that in private is top 40 under 40 recipient, Councillor Andrew Knack. Down to the wire, I think he ages out of eligibility in mere weeks. Fact checker Troy here from the booth. Turns out it is 19 days from the release of this podcast that he ages out of eligibility for top 40. Congratulations on making top 40 under 40 just barely. <laughs> He was recognized, or Councillor Knack is recognized, for making thoughtful decisions with the city's future at heart. And I know he's a listener. He's probably listening. I will say that I do think this is a true and fair assessment of Andrew Knack. We don't always agree. 
He doesn't always make decisions that you or I would make. But on the whole, he is one of the most dedicated, hardworking public officials that we have in the city. And I really do feel like he's doing his best, you know, to make decisions at council that benefit everybody, not just his pet projects, not just his constituents, not just his own political viewpoints or anything like that. So I feel like this is warranted, even if it is just down to the wire. I haven't run the attendance stats in a few years at least, but at least for a couple terms, Councillor Andronak had perfect meeting attendance. So if nothing else, he showed up. And now for the rapid fire segment. New reforms by the Alberta government are promising that good drivers will see a benefit in their premium price, which is absolutely fantastic for the 12 total Edmontonian drivers whose skills qualify as good. That's a whole lot of bridge, said patrons heading to the NHL Heritage Classic last weekend. Okay, so this news release came out. This is the title of the news release. Lotta Bridge reopens on schedule, on budget, and in time for the NHL Heritage <laughs> Classic. Like, what does this have to do with the Heritage Classic? Why did we have to shoehorn that into this? This timely reopening coincides with, with the much-anticipated NHL Heritage Classic. You don't take the Lotta Bridge to get to the stadium where the game was played. You take the train. What am I missing, Troy? <laughs> you might not take the train, but Edmontonians... They want to drive. Where would they park? Bus lanes and bike lanes. That's where they park. Yeah, yeah, for sure. With high maintenance costs mounting, the city has put Hangar 14 up for sale, which for many indicates that the home of the Alberta Aviation Museum will be history. Said a curator at the museum, quote, This is just plain wrong. Our space isn't a flight of fancy, but it's important to the city and now it's up in the air. Speak Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, who also publishes The Pulse. We said in the episode, you could have known way earlier about that Blatchford report had you read The Pulse. You can get up-to-date, immediate news every morning straight in your inbox by just subscribing to The Pulse at taprootedmonton.ca. And of course, it's not just politics. It's food, tech, arts, business, and so much more. You can subscribe at taprootedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. And I'll see you on the train. And you'll find out next week that that has a double meaning. Looking forward to it. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Municipally.